Amen. Thank you. Matthew chapter 9. If you'll grab your copy of Scripture. First book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, page 1120. In the Pew Bible in front of you, if you forgot your copy of Scripture, just flip to 1120. You'll find Matthew, the ninth chapter. Tonight we're going to wrap up our discussion of our love for God and how to cultivate our love for God. I feel like we've had a prosperous uh, time together over the past five weeks on Sunday nights um, discussing various ways in which God calls us to love Him and how we might work together and cultivate that love. And so we've talked about uh, how our fellowship, how our our familyhood is a family of faith, how that will spur us on uh, to love God in a greater way. I talked you through some uh, some applications of meditation through Psalm 19 and prayer and how those will cultivate great love in our heart towards God. And at the end of the day, uh, you just need to realize that it's Uh, The greater knowledge we have of God, the greater love we'll possess for Him. The more we know Him, the more we'll love Him. And so tonight we'll wrap this series up by looking at one more facet. I'll give you one more uh, tool, if you will, that you can use in your relationship with the Lord. But let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll study God's Word together. Father, we thank You for tonight. And Lord, as we meet here to study Your Word and God, we're grateful to be able to sing praises unto You. We lift up all the multitude of people that right now work with our children and teaching them the Word of God, loving them and encouraging them. Lord, we pray that You would bless their endeavors. Thank You for their selfless devotion to building the next generation for Your glory. And we're grateful and thankful, Lord, that even now many serve And God, we're grateful for them. Pray that you would bless our children, Lord God, that you would give them recall of that which they've studied. Lord, that their hearts would just be tender and soft, Lord, as they uh, hear and experience the, the wonders of knowing a great and amazing God. So, Father, now we will look into your word, accept it as a gift, Lord, to us. Father, it's perfect in every way, inerrant. God's special and wonderful, and we, we're just grateful tonight. Will you use it to minister to our hearts, God? Lord, I know that tonight uh, may be a, a very, uh, it's a difficult subject for some people, and I pray that you'll use this, leverage this for your glory in each of our lives, God, that we might be a people willing to experience all of you, Father, that we have access to. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we've been together. I must say that it has been a, uh, a wonderful journey for me, for sure. I've been so blessed as I've just uh, worked through these various scriptures and um, just prayed through and thought through all of our conversations. We've said in the past five weeks, we've said that love, uh, first and foremost, it is an action, that apart from action, it cannot love cannot truly be love. And uh, we just simply said that uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. Apart from Him giving, uh, Him loving the world wouldn't have been uh, much good to us. It wouldn't have changed anything. So we, we first have to respond in action. But love is not action alone. It's not merely action. And we see Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says, If I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, even if I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so those two passages of Scriptures, those two ideas, we've used all sorts of ways to look into this and to see the various, uh, the very uh, uh, deep and wonderful facets of the love of God and all the different various ways in which it applies to our life. But we still struggle. I know for me, and I I sense it in you over these weeks as we've talked through this, that uh, we so desperately want to cling to duty because duty is just, uh, it's simple. We want to know what's required of us. 
We want to be pleasing to God. I mean, that's why I told you in the beginning. That's why I'm preaching this series on Sunday night. It would be a, a train wreck on Sunday morning. It would take me so long to talk through all the various uh, problems that exist with someone who is unregenerate and unredeemed and doesn't have the spirit within them listening to this. It could, it could cause so much danger. And so, uh, but, but even in this crowd, even in this room, we, we want duty because we want to please God. And if duty is simple, you tell me what to do, I'll do that, and then I'll please God, and I'm happy. But it's not that simple. It, it's, it, we can't simply uh, have duty apart from delight. And delight is, is complicated. Delight is where it gets tricky because you can't manufacture delight. You can't just, you can't just pull up inside your heart love and affection for something. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's not something that we really have control over. And so we said last week that joyless duty is a sin. That just merely Following the do's and don'ts of Christianity apart from joy in our hearts, it's a sin. It's a sin. And that's a, that's a, difficult, uh, that's a difficult thing to really grapple with in your heart. 1 John 5, notice how these two things play off each other. For this, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So we see the duty, but then the Bible follows up with the statement, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not. So we can, we can love God, we can, we can know Him, we can receive this inexpressible gift that we in no way, shape, or form could have ever deserved. We had no possible way of earning it and being worthy of it. And that's why we cannot depend on ourselves to love God the way we ought to. We can't, we can't be self-dependent in love any more than we can be self-dependent in anything else with regards to God. We need His help. Our hearts are prone to wander. They are. You know, it seems like every Sunday night, uh, we, you know this to be true. We see this. We, we see it on each other's faces on Sunday nights. Sunday... What happened to the concept of a day of rest? Where did that go? You, you ever notice how wore out we are on Sundays? And here's the thing. Let me think about it. Now, now you know, I'm, I, I taught an in-depth teaching on the Sabbath, so we're not getting into all that. But Sundays many times have sort of become this dumping ground for everything that won't fit anywhere else. And so, in the busyness of our lives, what didn't get consumed or accomplished on Saturday just sort of rolls over to Sunday. And what happens is, that I'm, not, I'm not proclaiming uh, anything to do with the Sabbath. What I'm simply saying is, is that we, we wind up here on Sunday nights. And, and if we're not careful, it can be very dutiful. And not very delightful because we're exhausted. We're tired. We've just had a lot of things going on. We've had a lot of things with running around and doing all these things. And you see, the, the enemy will, will use Sundays to just get us as tangled up as we possibly can be. And it's, we, we know it's true and we know it ought not be this way. And it's, it's just like the conversation that I have with you from time to time about the, protecting Saturday nights because Saturday nights is a grand opportunity for your life and my life to get totally sidetracked to mess up our Sunday. Because if, if, we, if we stay up too late on Saturday night, then here we go. We've already started out behind. And then if we even make it to where we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to be there, it's just a struggle to grind through. And so by the time we get through Sunday night, we're just exhausted. And I think it's just an indication that our hearts are so prone to wonder. We have to be so careful, so cautious, so we, we really have to be thoughtful about 
our, our delight in God and our walk with God and where we are in relation to God and with Him personally because it needs constant monitoring. Constant monitoring. So, you know, you ever think about how you never get to the end of the day? Really, you never get to any part of the day. You've never even experienced this at all. I've never heard this, thought this. But as I was thinking about how prone to wonder we are and how hard it is to to cultivate love in our hearts towards God in the way in which we ought to, I was thinking about how when we pray, when I was talking to you about prayer, when we're talking about all the things we pray and how we we pray just default mode for the things that we need. We pray default mode for the people that we love who are suffering for the... But you know what? We've never prayed. No one's ever prayed. God, what a day I've had. I have loved you perfectly today. I've loved you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind. I mean, I have done it today. No one's ever prayed that. Because we know innately that we, we haven't. In other words, we know that. It would be absurd to pray that prayer. We know that we always need to love Him more. We, we fall short. In Titus chapter 2, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, looking, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us for every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Now, I want you to think about this Scripture, and I want you to think about how if only God can save us from something, then wouldn't it stand to reason that only God can save us to something? In other words, once saved, once we are justified, once we're born again, then what are we born again to? What is this new life that we're born to? And that's what the Bible's talking about in Titus chapter 2. That He redeemed us from every lawless deed through salvation to purify for Himself His own special people. And what about those special people? Zealous for good works. Not dutiful, but zealous. In other words emotionally connected, excited about doing good works. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. Does that just come natural? Do you just, do you just wake up your first day as a born-again child of God? You get saved on Sunday, you wake up Monday morning, and you, your eyes pop open, you look at the ceiling, and you think, I'm zealous for good works today. What are we going to do? I don't think so. It it doesn't work that way. But God purified for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Now, that's been done. It's been accomplished. So our, our role in this process of sanctification is to cultivate a zealousness for good works. Is to, is to do certain things, to involve ourselves in certain activities, to be about certain disciplines that will cultivate in us a great zeal for good works, a great love for God. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, through the act of justification, because of that justification, we now have peace with God. But notice what Paul says in verse 2. We now have access to the unlimited grace of God through our justification and our peace with God, through salvation. We have access to that. But how do you redeem it? How do you claim it? Like, you... In other words, you've been issued the ticket, the winning lottery ticket for the grace of God has been issued to you. You now possess the winning numbers. You can redeem it for as much as you want, but where do you go? How do you do that? How do you, how do you receive all of that grace in a practical way? How do we get the grace that we need to love God in the way that we're called to? You see, because 
It was grace that saved us. And it's grace that allows us to to know God. It's grace that allows us to, to fellowship with God. It's everything about our relationship with God is based on grace, not on works, lest any man should boast. So this grace... In regard to our relationship with God, how do we cultivate it? How do we redeem it? How do we claim the prize, if you will, so that we might retrieve this grace and then in turn be able to love God the way in which we ought to? Because you know from experience what grace does to your life. In the moments in your life where you have been most connected to the grace of God where you've seen the tangible grace of God applied to your life, those are the high points of your affection for God. You, you all understand that, right? Automatically. That's why we are to remember the joy of our salvation. That's why no one, no one is ever uh, saved mourning over salvation. Because the grace of God is shed abroad upon us. I mean, it's grace that, that in, inspires our heart to leap. And so that's where we want to be. So, in order to do that, we need to know God better. Because God is love. And so, if you want to love God more, then you want to know the God who is love, which in turn will allow you to love God more. So, I was thinking, after uh, I gave Craig the text for this for tonight, I thought, now, what, what music is he going to have us sing? with regards to this text. I know you don't know what we're talking about, but you will in a second. I got to say, you did a great job. It was, it was very good. Because it was not the easiest thing in the world to put our hearts to worship to. Matthew chapter 6, here's what the Bible says. We'll get to Matthew 9 in a second. But Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, beginning in verse 16, Moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I want to make the case tonight that fasting is the often overlooked amazing opportunity to take a quantum leap forward in your love relationship with God. And so as your flesh is resisting what I just said, let's let God do the convincing tonight. Matthew chapter 9, really uh, the definitive, I think, uh, practical teaching on fasting in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, he teaches that successful fasting is, is done in private. In other words, that's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 6, that this is an intimate thing between you and me. So when he says this, when he says that you're, you're to you're clean yourself up, anoint your head, wash your face. Don't, don't, you know, in the Old Testament they would dump ashes on their head and rip their clothes and do all these crazy outward things and they would fast and mourn. And Jesus said, don't do that. Take a bath. Iron your clothes. Don't look like anything weird is going on with you. And let it be just between you and your Father who's in the secret place. And He'll reward you openly. Now, that, that ought to sort of spark your attention. It ought to make you think, now, that's a, that's a glorious invitation to, to enter into intimacy with God. He's saying, you just get everybody else out of the way and you, you come and fast with your Father, just, just me and you. Matthew 9. Let's let Jesus teach us. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, this is a great question because here's the deal about fasting. Even in 
the Bible, e- even even in the disciples of John, even any it, it, throughout history, here's the thing we want to know. I don't want to talk about fasting. I want to know, do I have to? What's the benefit of it? If If you're not fasting, I'm not fasting. So the disciples of John the Baptist, they're just being honest. They're saying what everybody would say. Hey, hey now, Jesus, if you're not fasting, then we're going to punt this discipline because... This is definitely uh, not our favorite. It's going to be the first one to get crossed off of everybody's list if we don't have to do it. So Jesus says to them, verse 15, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for a patch, or for the patch will pull away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So Jesus says, essentially, well, now is not the time to fast. That's the reason why you don't see me and my disciples fasting, that it's not really the time now. Now, I want to submit to you that... Fasting is not, the, it's not really a big topic in Southern Baptist circles, isn't it? You don't hear a whole lot of that. Now, fellowshipping and potlucking, we talk a lot about. Fasting, on the other hand, you don't hear a lot of sermons on gluttony or fasting. We just leave those things alone. You notice that? I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just right there with you. We're just, you know, friends just having a little conversation tonight. So I want you to know how this this all began with me. Several years ago, I was, uh, uh, I don't even remember what the situation was. But I was somewhere and some smart-alecky teenager, Ralph's son Chase, was doing what he ought to be doing, reading through his Bible. And he came to this passage in in Matthew 9. And so he does what he would normally do. And he'd come to me and say, you know, Mr. Tony, will you you help me with this? And I said, sure. And he opened to that passage. I thought, I'm going to kill you. So he said, what's the deal with fasting? And I said, "Mm, what do you mean, what's the deal? I'm buying time, thinking, thinking, thinking. And so he wanted to, and you know, ask me all these questions about fasting. And I'll be honest with you, I just really wasn't prepared to have this conversation. And so I left that conversation determined that I was going to do some investigating. Because I could talk my way through this passage. I had a pretty good idea of what Jesus was saying. But how did that really apply? Because he just wanted to know, what do I need to do today? And so I did what any great theologian would do. I'll get back to you on that. And so I began to investigate this issue of fasting. And my endeavors led me to uh, a a very, very uh, famous book, Celebrate Discipline by Richard Foster, who uh, has just done an uh, amazing work in writing about various disciplines of the Christian life, and he has a chapter on fasting. And so I began, I read that that book, I read that chapter, and I, you know, felt like I got a pretty good handle on it. And then I uh, went back and actually talked Chase through everything that I learned, and actually that conversation led to us, in, you know, installing that study into uh, the curriculum in the youth department where for a number of years we studied through the, that book and we every week would, would talk through a different, uh, a different discipline of the Christian life because I realized that we don't, we don't know a lot about the discipline of fasting and other disciplines, but especially that one. So then I kind of put it behind me. Then years passed and I went to seminary. And at seminary, lo and behold, I had to study in depth 
with a room full of other seminary students, Richard Foster's book. And I had to teach the class on the chapter of fasting. Isn't God got a glorious sense of humor? And so through that process, God just began to really open my eyes to all that He has to say. And I think that tonight as we talk, talk through this for a few moments, you'll see it has drastic implications on our love relationship with our Heavenly Father. So Jesus says in verse 15... Can the friends of the bridegroom, well, do they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, no, obviously not. He's with them. Why would they mourn? Jesus sees himself as the bridegroom, which shouldn't be a surprise. I used the text this morning out of Isaiah 6 where God says that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's simply how God will relate oftentimes to us as the bridegroom. Hosea chapter 2, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. In righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So our God is a God who who initiates a relationship and uses this idea of himself as the bridegroom to, to illustrate his commitment to us as the bride. But what catches my attention about what Jesus says is how he brings this word mourn into it. Because that, that's, that's sort of troublesome. In other words, why is, why is the word mourn in this. Is that something you have to do when you fast? Is that is it an act of mourning? And so I swiftly learned that in the Old Testament, fasting was always associated with mourning because it was done in response to some sin or some calamity or struggle. And the hope was always that God would somehow respond to our fasting and intervene in our circumstances, in our situation. So in the Old Testament, God's people would fast longing for an intervention of God. And so therefore it was this mourning because they're mourning in the circumstances and the situation that they find themselves in and the misery of all that. And in fasting, their hope is that God would look at them Pity them. I mean, come on. you got ashes dumped on your head. You've got a burlap sack on. You're ripped up. You're sitting there in the dirt. You're pitiful. And the whole idea is, God, look at how pitiful I am. Intervene and help me. And so that's why there's mourning. But here, when John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and say, Hey, why, why aren't you fasting? Well, he says, because the friends of the bridegroom, well, why would they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, although the ultimate intervention is yet to come, the glorious intervention is right in front of them. Is it not? In other words, it's not fully culminated, but it is fully instigated. It is fully instituted. In other words, in the Old Testament, they're looking forward and forward only. And their hope is, is that God would intervene. But the reason the disciples of Jesus don't fast is because they're in the presence of God's intervention. You don't get any more glorious than that. There's God in the flesh with them. So why would you mourn Why would you seek intervention when I'm right here? And so that's the point he's making. He's saying weddings are for feasting, not for fasting. No one would fast on their wedding day. It just simply would be unconscionable. Now, John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, he said, you yourselves bear witness Bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have, but I've been sent before him. This is what John the Baptist said. 
He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But now listen. But the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You see that? In other words, he says, well, now I'm not the bridegroom because I don't have the bride. But when the bridegroom is in my presence, when I hear the voice of the bridegroom, I am filled with joy because I hear him, because he's there, because he's among us. And so therefore, I wouldn't mourn, I would be filled with joy. So all previous fasting prior to Jesus coming on the scene was always done in anticipation of God's intervention into this world. But the disciples of Jesus, therefore, they don't fast because it is the wedding day. So when this interaction takes place in Matthew chapter 9, it's the wedding day. The bridegroom is right there. And everyone knows that it would be ridiculous to fast on a wedding day, right? So, what about the second part of verse 15? But the day will come, or the days will come, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now remember, when Jesus talked about fasting in Matthew chapter 6, He said, when you fast. Just prior to that statement in Matthew 6, He talked about Prayer, that's where he gives the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mountain. He says, when you pray. In other words, we love to talk about that text and say, you know, it says right there, when you pray. It's not if you pray, but when you pray. It's, it's presupposed that as a child of God, you're going to pray. But I've never heard anybody talk about it. It's presupposed that as a child of God, you're going to fast. Twice, Jesus says, when you fast. It's just built in. There's no command to fast. It's just presupposed that all Christians would fast. Well, what has been lost here? Well, when the days, there, there come a day when the bridegroom's going to be taken away and then they'll fast. So the question is, is that today? Because if it is, we got to get busy. What does Jesus mean? Well, he means that after the ascension, he's going to be gone. And so until he comes again, that's this window. And in this window between his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his return, in between these two times, people will fast. Now, what about this fasting? Well, then he goes into these sort of obscure teachings about... You know, there's going to be this this patch that's put on this garment and this wine that's put in this wineskin. And what he wants us to see is that in this time frame, while the bridegroom is away, fasting is going to be different than it used to be before. That you will no longer fast in the way that you used to fast. It will function differently. And I think that's the problem. I think the problem today is that we don't understand how it functions and therefore we don't do it. Because if God told me to go sit out in the dirt and dump ashes on my head and rip my clothes and wear a burlap sack, I'd do it. But He'd have to tell me. He'd have to tell me. I'm not just going to come up with that on my own. You're not going to come over to my house and I'm going to be sitting in the backyard with ashes on my head. Now, I have it on my face a lot when I'm hiking, but not on my head. So... What is this talking about in verse 16? No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Now, um, the first thing I think about when I read this passage is how much I love to talk about things that I don't know anything about. I will argue about stuff I know nothing about. And, and when I read this, this is the first thing I thought about. Just the other day, and only with my wife primarily, we get in this conversation. Sometimes I walk away and I think, I have got to be the dumbest person in the world. What am I doing? We get in this conversation about how clothes shrink. Like I would even know. 
how clothes shrink. Like, I have any authority to speak on that topic. So, I say to Lisa, she says, I've got some pair of pants in my hand or something. And then I say, well, and she says, well, they'll shrink. And I said, well, no, they won't. Mistake number one. So she says to me, well, why do you say that? Which right then, see, I know I'm doomed now. So I say, because they've already been washed. And she says, so you think things only shrink one time? Like it's just a one-shot deal? The first time you wash it, it's like 100% shrunk as far as it'll ever shrink? All the shrinkage that could ever happen is all accomplished in this one moment of single washing? Uh, yes, that's what I'm going to say to that. She's like, no. That's not how it works. To which I say, well, I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. See, quit while you're ahead. I don't know anything about fabric and shrinking. And I know way less about patches on garments. But I know what this means. This means that if something has not been washed, it will shrink. And if you patch it on something that, you know, has a rip in it, and then you wash it, the patch is going to shrink and make the rip worse. Right? See, ladies, I got that part right. That I know because it's in the Bible. But beyond that, I am just ignorant. But I, for some reason, can't get to ignorance whenever we're talking. Me and her. For some reason, I want to go, no, I think I know all about how fabric operates. Spin cycles and temperatures and all those amazing, wonderful things. Verse 17. Nor do you put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins will break and the wine will be spilled. So when you put wine into a wineskin, the fermenting process of the wine expands the wine, which in turn stretches the wineskin. So once a wineskin has been stretched, if you put new wine into an already stretched wineskin, what's going to happen? It's going to burst and the wine is going to spill out. And so, just like in the first illustration, the attempt to fix the garment actually makes the garment worse. In the second illustration, the attempt to preserve the wine actually ruins the wine and the wineskin. In other words, all is lost. Neither are preserved. That's why Jesus says you put new wine in a new wineskin and both are preserved. So... Fasting is different now in the same way that you, if you were to fast today the way they fasted in the Old Testament, it would be as if you were putting an unshrunk patch or you were pouring new wine in an old wineskin. It won't work. It won't work that way. Today, fasting... It, it serves a dual purpose. We're in the middle of two things. And so when we fast, we think back on what He's already accomplished in sending His Son, but we look forward to what we have yet to experience in His return. We're in between two amazing, wonderful, glorious things. But here's what makes this so amazing. In other words, so you say to that, well, so, so what? So how is that so different? It's so different because it changes everything. In other words, since we're talking about fasting, I think it would only be appropriate if I used a food illustration. If you sat down to this meal that you maybe greatly anticipated, you look forward to in this spectacular restaurant or this phenomenal person was cooking, and you sit down and you're waiting and the appetizer comes... And the appetizer is the best thing you've ever eaten in your life. Does it in any way diminish your expectation of the main course or does it enhance what you can not even believe how good it may be? In other words, if the, if the precursor to the meal is this good, how unbelievable is the main course going to be? You see? 
In other words, the foretaste of Christ ought to exponentially enhance our anticipation of what is yet to come. You see, we've experienced already the glory of God intervening into our world and sending His Son to redeem us. But even as amazing as that is, it's just a taste of what's yet to come. And so now we fast in the middle of these two things and we look back to what is so good we can't even believe it. And we look forward to what's so good we can't even comprehend it. And in the middle of those two things... When you fast in light of those two rock-solid, wonderful truths, what happens to your heart? It longs for Jesus. It, it just begs for Him to come. It, you see, when you fast as a New Testament Christian, you, you, don't, you don't fast in an Old Testament way. You, you can't, you can't do that because to do that, you would have to deny everything that makes you a New Testament Christian. But now, now, because of what has been accomplished, in other words, an Old Testament saint, a man after God's own heart, a a person with with the faith of a giant, still looked forward with the hope that God would fulfill that which He promised to do. That He would do that. And though there were, there were prophets, there, might, there were miracles, there were, there were all of these little glimpses of assurance along the way, there were all of these opportunities to, to, to excite them and, and keep them pressing forward. But it was still just a, God, how are you going to do this? And when is this going to happen? And things get, get worse and worse and worse. And we're just more oppressed and more oppressed. And, and, and we're just more devastated and more pushed down and more wrenched in by the by the occupation of stronger foes and everything just seems to be going in the wrong direction but i hope god i hope that one day you'll come that one day you'll intervene that one day you'll do what you said you're going to do that's not who you are tonight you're not hoping that god will intervene you're celebrating the fact that he did we live tonight because he did the unthinkable He did what no one could imagine in a way that no one could have expected. He sent His Son to this earth, intervened in the most glorious way you could ever imagine. And now, you fast in light of that intervention and how much more certain can we be today? In other words, hello, if He came and lived and defeated death and rose from the dead, why would you bother struggling with, is He coming back? You see? So you fast in light of these two glorious truths and your heart overwhelms. It just, it just gets overwhelmed with the goodness of God. You see? The presence of the bridegroom, it doesn't make the old way better. That's why I'm convinced Jesus gives these two illustrations about about the patch and about the wine. Is that He wants to be clear. I'm not improving the way you used to fast. I'm not, I'm not coming on the scene to bring about a, a new way, a, a new and improved way of, of, of adding to what you used to do. No, 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 no. I'm here to turn everything upside down, to revolutionize the whole thing. That you, you no longer, you no longer need to long for intervention. I've intervened. Oh, and by the way, by the way, You don't even need to look up anymore. 
You don't need to look out anymore. All you have to do is look in. I'm right here. I've set up a dwelling within you. So whatever you need, whenever you need it, I'm right here. I'm before, I'm, I'm before you know you need it. I'm already there. I'm already before you. So in the Old Testament, God's people were compelled. They were compelled to fast based on this hope. But in the New Testament, how much more should we who have touched the hem of His garment and received healing through salvation... How much more should we who have, have gained this, this foretaste of what is to come, how much more should we, based on what we know and what we see today and what we experience, that, that when we're no longer surprised, that as children of God, when the fruit of the Spirit emulates out of us, we, we know it's not of us. We know it was, it's nothing that we innately brought to the table. We know it's not some human capacity that we possess. We see God working directly in and through our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We see it. We see it. We drive down the road. And just suddenly are overwhelmed with this desire and this need to pray for some individual just in this moment. Where does that come from? That never happened to you apart from Christ. It certainly never happened to me. But now, these experiences are just reminders of the fact that God is... His, his, he didn't just intervene. He, he inner. Veined. He's with you and with me. And so as we walk and as we live and as we seek Him and as we pray and certainly as we fast, God is there to just cultivate in our hearts, to just remind us of how flippant our hearts are and how quickly we are to fill ourselves up with things that don't profit us. And so by, by willingly putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation, by taking food and pushing it aside and saying, Lord, today I want to I dine on manna from heaven, not donuts from Krispy Kreme. I want you, Lord. I want you. And as your stomach growls, and as you begin to feel a little shaky, and you think about how hungry you are, and then you're reminded of what you're doing and why you're doing this, and you dwell on your Heavenly Father, and how what really matters is not food. It's not things. It's not experiences. But what really matters is Him. You see, it's, it's not as complicated as we like to make it, is it? We so quickly degenerate our belief system into some duty. Because duty is easy. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. So let's make sure we're clear tonight. I'm not telling you to wake up tomorrow and fast so that you can say that I did it. Mm -mm. I'm simply saying that if you find yourself wanting to love God more, wanting to cultivate in your heart, a deeper love for Him, wanting to really, in a deeper, more spectacular way, understand the way in which He loves you. If you want to know Him better tomorrow than you know Him today, then fast. But when you do it, wash your face and iron your clothes and don't act like a fool. And He'll meet you in the secret place. In fact, when you get to the secret place,
He'll be waiting for you. And you spend the day thinking about what He's done and what's yet to come. And watch what happens to your heart. Fasting ought not be a bad word. It ought to be a glorious, glorious opportunity where God says, I'm in the secret place. Come on. Come meet me. And if that's not good enough, he says, I'll even reward you because I love being with my children. I love fellowshipping with those who are mine. So let's not turn down the invitation. What would happen if God's people fasted? Let's stand, bow our heads. Say, Father, we just thank you tonight. We thank you, Lord, because we can come and look in your word. We can have a discussion about something that is so resistant to many of our hearts. And yet in the end, we can realize that it's yet another way in which you pour out your love towards us. Father, I pray for all of us in this room that, God, we might long to know you deeper. That the inexhaustible, infinite grace that we have access to through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that, Father, You would allow us to redeem just truckloads of that grace through fasting. So, Father, thank You tonight. Thank You that You would even want to spend time with me. That just blows my mind. That You, the perfect God of the universe would even know my name. So, Father, we are a people. We are a people between two great things. And, Lord God, thank You. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You, Lord, for proving Yourself righteous and true. Thank You for doing, Lord, what only You could do for reconciling us to You. Father, thank You. And, God, as we wait... May we long for you to return, Lord. Maybe, maybe tonight, maybe you'll come. Lord God, come quickly. So, Father, we, we pray that as we pray where we are, as we approach this altar, God, that we recognize that we kneel to pray to a God who loves us in ways we have yet to even tap into. Lord, We want to. We want to know you in a deeper, more amazing way. So thank you for speaking to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open.